0: Hello, this is The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. Our show today is going to start off where we left off last time. You may remember that for my free electron at the end of the last show, I raised the subject of AI and energy. And essentially, I was taking a slightly sceptical view. I think I was saying that I didn't really expect it to have Transformational impact on the world of energy. And Melissa Lott, who was co hosting with me at the time, said, Well, hang on a minute. If you're going to start throwing that kind of assertion around, if you're going to talk seriously about AI and energy, you really need to get our good friend and colleague Amy Myers Jaffe back on to talk about it because that's a subject she's looked into very deeply and she knows a lot about it. And so that's exactly what we've done. And I'm delighted, Amy, that you're able to join us today. Hi.
1: Great to be here, Ed, and I'm definitely going to hold your feet to the fire on this topic.
0: Fantastic. Looking forward to it. Amy, as regular listeners will know, is the director of the Energy Climate Justice and Sustainability Lab at New York University. Michael Weber is the Josie Centennial Professor in Energy Resources at the University of Texas at Austin. He's been an academic for a very long time, but has also worked for a few years as Chief Science and Technology Officer at ENGIE, the big French energy company formerly known as Gaz de France, and he's held many other roles in the world of energy as well. He's also the author of a couple of really good books about energy, Power Trip and Thirst for Power, both of which I would highly recommend to you. Uh, Michael, hello, how are you? Thanks very much for joining us today. Good to see you. Thanks for letting me be part of this conversation with you. Thanks very much for joining us. One of the things we like to do very often when we have new guests on is get them to talk a little bit about their career path, how you got into energy in the first place and how you got to the role you now hold. What was it for you? What got you into the world of energy? So I got into energy as an engineer,
2: studying aerospace engineering as an undergraduate at the University of Texas, thinking about space propulsion. And if you think about space propulsion, you need a lot of energy released very quickly to move heavy things long distances. And as a consequence, I did a couple internships at NASA working on high-speed supersonic combustion, which got me into combustion. And combustion is at the core of the global energy system. About 85% of the world's energy comes from burning something wood or caledon biomass coal oil gas that kind of thing and so i got a pc in combustion engineering and then that got me into energy and then i made my way through policy eventually get energy systems analysis which i'm doing now so i got there from a love of space exploration frankly which is not really an obvious path i don't think
0: that's very interesting of course space propulsion very much uh, a hot activity in texas right now because of elon musk and spacex and what they're doing what do you think of their work Are you following that closely
2: I do follow closely. I'm still an enthusiast for space exploration and space propulsion and different technologies. I think it's exciting to see us sort of extend our presence in space for exploration, the raw science, just sort of the curiosity of it as well as some of the things we learned about Earth. And I would say that tends to be a proving ground for some of our energy technologies. In the old days, we used kerosene-based fuels to get rockets to space, but it was NASA that really pioneered the use of hydrogen as a propulsion fuel and fuel cells in space and waste heat capture devices. So Space is a proving ground for one of our energy technologies because it's such a complicated location to work in. And so I do follow it partly from the space enthusiasm and partly from the energy
0: technology transfer aspect. Yeah, that's a great point. And of course, solar power, photovoltaic solar, absolutely uh, pioneered by space program, used to power satellites and so on.
1: And automated vehicles.
0: And automated vehicles, as you say, yeah, great point. yeah, And to the point about uh, photovoltaic solar, that was one of the things that gave American satellites a crucial advantage. Russian satellites, uh, obviously, Sputnik was put into orbit first, but just had a battery powering it, ran out of juice pretty quickly. American satellites with solar panels on them could go for a very long time. And so that was, uh, that was a crucial early advantage that the U.S. had in the space race.
2: That's right. And uh, the Russians had bigger rockets, could lift bigger things. And because the United States had smaller rockets we had to invent the microelectronics industry to shrink the size of our payloads because we couldn't lift the heavy stuff, which sort of a nice benefit. The other sense, our technical deficiency led to a technical superiority in a different sector.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Which is all of this being a great segue into what I want to talk about first on this show, which, as I was saying, another kind of futuristic technology, which is artificial intelligence. As I was saying, I raised this as a subject on the last show because it was something we've been talking about internally at Wood Mackenzie. And clearly, if you've been looking at any kind of media or social media in the last few months, you'll have seen huge excitement over AI, largely, I think, because of ChatGPT and similar large language models and the amazing things that they can do. And people have then naturally said, well, what does this uh, advance in AI mean for lots of other industries? Seems to me, though, that a lot of this excitement is based on the fact that ChatGPT affects the kind of people that talk on the media and on social media. It's a large language model. It affects journalism and marketing and entertainment and education. And maybe it doesn't have such a direct read-across to energy. And of course, in energy, people have actually been talking about AI, I would say, for at least a decade, I think. I've been hearing people discuss AI. Uh, GE was developing its AI capabilities certainly more than a decade ago. If you look back at what the oil companies have been doing, BP and others were investing in AI five, six, seven, eight years ago, and so on. So I get a slight kind of, is there anything really new about this feeling? And when you look at what AI has been doing in energy over the period that we've been using it, there have certainly been some real benefits. Definitely, it's made a difference in quite a number of different sectors, but it feels maybe like those benefits have been kind of incremental. It's improved labor productivity, certainly in quite a lot of places. It's improved the efficiency of power plants. It's helped oil and gas companies find new reserves of oil and gas and so on. But is there anything really revolutionary there? Personally, I did not see it. But, Amy, I'm going to defer to you on this one. What do you think? Is my kind of attitude being a bit blasé about AI and thinking that we've seen it already and it hasn't been that much of a big deal, am I really missing something?
1: Yeah, I think you're missing something, Ed, yeah, and I don't want to, like, cast aspersions on the age of all <laughs> of us here on the show today, but I think some of it is generational. My son-in-law, for example, was suggesting that if I was worried that my students used ChatGPT for their essays on carbon markets, I should use ChatGPT to correct and grade their papers, and that would save me a lot of time. But, you know... The bottom line is, it's so transformational, in my opinion, and so big, it's hard to articulate it because everybody has their little micro example. And we'll talk about some of those today. You know, I like to talk about line vision, which is sort of a LIDAR monitoring system and predictive analytics that can tell you whether from the sag in a line or from the heat temperature of a, a transmission line and all these data, you know, big data put together, machine learning, et cetera, it can tell you um, whether you could put more electricity onto a transmission line, which in some cases could be, some estimates are we could increase transmission capacity in the United States by 10 or 20 percent just by using this technology, for example, which would be big given how much waiting line there is to get to a transmission. But I, the way I think about it is if I tell you each like little application, you know, go back in time to when you first had a smartphone and young people were trying to develop apps all the time. And you were like, Hey, what's this app thing about? You know, I'm not going to play Angry Birds. Like, you know, in the end it builds up. So you've got millions and millions and millions of people are going to use that same little teeny application of AI. And then o- over time, you know, it becomes explosive. I mean, who uses a paper map today, right? And, you know, to do congestion pricing and all these things, which we just approved here in New York City, you know, it's much easier now, you know, using all these technologies. So I say there are three big areas right today. So, you know, we can talk about long-term because there's really big things coming long-term. But there's three big areas that where I think We're going to have a material, material difference in the energy space. One of them is energy efficiency, which Michael's probably better qualified to talk about than I am. Another one is management of the grid. So, you know, can Elon Musk come into your home and automate your power wall together with everything else you have, together with your, you know, systems operator and have there be no brownouts whatsoever. And the third one, which is new and big, like pitch book, you know, is exploding with VC deals in this area, which is uh, carbon accounting monitoring and verification, right? So I think we're going to get to the day, you know, you and I both did this, you know, great scenarios exercise with students from NYU. And one of the big takeaways for their vision of net zero was that they actually envisioned changing their own behavior, which is something generationally now baby boomer or even, you know, Other, you know, even people in their 40s are are really not thinking about in the same way. And that could be really material, because if you start to have data on your phone about the carbon output of everything you do, and that becomes sort of like having these monitoring devices for your glucose and your sleep and your heart rate all these things my phone is telling me now that's a little bit overwhelming. I tried to set an alarm the other day, but I had downloaded new software on my phone and it wouldn't let me set an alarm for 5.30 a.m. until I told it that my sleep pattern, I was going to get eight hours of sleep. It was like having my mother in my phone. But my point is, you know, all these things exponentially have just a huge potential To not only adjust behavior of individuals, but to be tapped by industry in a way that could make a serious difference.
0: Okay, that's a great case, I guess, for the defense of AI. Michael, what do you think? When you hear Amy and me give our somewhat contrasting views of what's going on here, how do you see
2: it? I have more of a mixed view. I think that AI will be transformative like the internet was, which means it will change our life in ways that we can't imagine. Yet life will look pretty similar. So we think about the rise of the, the internet, which is really like 30 years ago. I think it kind of came to life in 1994 and 95, so about 28 to 30 years ago. And I can't imagine life without the internet now. When I talk to my children and my students and try to explain life before the internet, they can't imagine it. So it's changed everything dramatically. Yet, I still get in my car and drive to work the way I did before the internet. Power plants far away, make electricity, to move electrons to where I am the same way we did before. Healthcare is not that much different. There's more data. We sort of travel differently. We stream information. We access information differently. But for the most part, life's the same, but with these enhancements or improvements that make life more convenient or easier or safer or more interesting, that kind of thing. So it's transformative. It touched every part of society. I can't imagine life without the internet, yet everything looks the same. And I suspect AI will be like that as well, that we'll have trouble imagining a history without AI once we get decades into it. But life might look very similar. Now, I will say that one thing that's very different now is that after the COVID pandemic, together with the internet, together with advanced telecom and fiber optics, a lot of us could work for home. So we actually have started to change our rhythms now where, where we sit or where we need energy and that kind of thing. And it took three decades, but we got there and it wasn't the internet alone. It was the internet plus these global events. So it might be the same with AI where AI plus other technologies or other global events might really shift our sort of layout sequence and structure of society, which is finally happening with the internet. I don't know about you, but I work from whole, a whole couple of days a week. I work from around the world. I have more flexibility now, and that's all internet enabled. But it took a couple of decades for us to get there. So that's my sense. I feel like AI will be an operational improvement. It'll be an enhancement to life, but it doesn't replace bulk power plants. It might let us need fewer power plants because we can do virtual power plants or we can operate the existing power plants better, that kind of thing. And so I think it's going to be transformative, yet society will look pretty similar.
1: So the Internet was kind of democratizing in the following way. I mean, it was anti-democracy in other ways, but in the following way. It used to be that you had to be a specialist to know something about a topic. Whereas, you know, then you got to the Internet where you could look it up quickly and, you know, beat your mother-in-law at a debate about whether something was or wasn't true. Right. So it sort of equalized everybody's access to data. But now we have this massive amount of data. We now we have these large language models that are trying to like, you know, boil it down for us. But it's only like 80% accurate. Like if you really actually use ChatGPT to turn in an essay to me, you know, you have to worry that I'd really correct the paper and find all the errors that the program made. So, you know, I still feel comfortable as an expert, but someday, you know, maybe that will change. And, And I think we have to think about as this data becomes more accessible, I think there's a fight which we're already seeing taking on. And, you know, Michael, you're a well-placed guest to talk about this. Like, if I decide that I'm not trusting my utility today, I have a lot more technology I can throw at that distrust. Um, And the utilities are fighting back. They're saying, no, you know, you can't use that distributive resource. But the bottom line is, in Europe, to try to Help with this situation of too much data, and you know, get the system operators to know what they're doing. They pass this whole system called Ense, right, where they publish all of the utility data, and everybody has like the same vision of what's being used. And Europe, you know, actively trades electricity from one resource. You hear stories about you know French nuclear being used to offset some problem in another country, or geothermal and in Northern Europe and so forth, and someday wind from offshore be a bigger contributor. But they still also don't have these distributive resources logged in, and they're getting to be bigger and bigger and bigger resources. So, you know, one estimate is that these distributed energy resources could be 35 gigawatts in the United States by 2030. Um, so you're talking about a lot of capacity. That you know me, the household or me, the business might control, and not your utility. And we're seeing these fights. You know, the first fight was between Solar City and Warren Buffett's Envy uh, Energy in Nevada, where these two billionaires kissed and made up and said that the existing customers for Solar City could have net metering, but no one else can from now on. Um, and we're seeing Michael can talk about it later. You know, we're seeing the same kind of fight now in Texas. Uh, maybe also between Musk and uh, Warren Buffett. So my thing as a policy expert, I'm sure Michael would agree with this. You know, these policies should not be besetting by like free billionaires going to the PUC. Like we all should weigh in because these technologies that we're talking about, part of the reason why they're not revolutionary is because the incumbent industry doesn't want it to be. You know, self-driving vehicles, integrated systems where my house and my car and everything is like operating together i don't need the grid like we don't have the policy set up right and the prices set up right to make this revolutionary
0: yeah that is a fascinating point actually what is your view on that michael what do you think about the policy implications of ai and energy and as amy was saying is there this fantastic kind of democratizing potential which is being stifled by industry structures as they exist at the moment
2: that great comment. So I feel like the policy apparatus in places like the United States tends to lag technology evolutions by decades. So we're just now at a point where you have Republicans and Democrats both talking about, okay, how do we regulate the internet? But like we, we've had it be a wild, wild west for 30 years, but now there's enough harm happening from social media or disinformation, concerns about censorship, that kind of thing that both parties are kind of like, we probably need to do something, and that's part of the lag that happens. And I expect we'll have the same kind of lag with AI. AI will ride, it'll show up in different corners of our life. It won't be well regulated because the policy system just lags by a long time. And I guess the risk is, well, how much damage happens in the meantime before we decide we need to regulate it intelligently? And are the risks higher with AI because it's got self learning capability that it can do more damage more quickly or will do more good more quickly as well? And so I think that's kind of concern I have is about this time lag between technology and policy. And I've got to react to something. Amy said, because she and I are both in the world of grading student essays, and I've tested ChatGPT or other things with these student essays. And I would say, I think that experts still have a job for a little while longer because OpenAI or whatever it is, these different tools that people are using, it doesn't let you do great work, but it helps you do mediocre work really quickly. And there's actually some advantage to society to getting to mediocre with less effort, but to get to excellence still takes additional efforts beyond what AI can do so far. Which is also true of google and the internet right so wikipedia gets you started but it doesn't get you to an a plus paper and so it feels like that to me where the sole role for expertise because we're not gonna get all the way there yet now maybe in a decade i'll change my tune the areas where i think artificial intelligence shows up in our lives the most with the most impact today and maybe this will continue t- in the future is real language translation having worked at a multinational company i was translating documents from dutch to French to English all the time, and the language translation tools have gotten remarkably better in the last five years. And A lot of that's because of the learning that comes with artificial intelligence. So real translation has gotten better. Automation is a place. I've already mentioned that. I think one of the first places most humans in the United States will experience AI is actually through automated travel and cars, for example. I think AI will be really beneficial for prediction, understanding uh, really fine changes in weather or demand or whenever it is, and that feeds into the automation of a car, anticipating the moves of other cars, that kind of thing, and then analyzing large data sets. So there there are a few places where AI has very obvious value from where I sit, but writing beautiful essays that are correct on complicated energy policy, it's not quite there, but that doesn't mean it will be someday.
1: Well, and let me just say, because uh, Michael makes a good point. So, you know, one of these things about these large language models is that they're going to be very facilitating because right now, You know i really need to bring in a a data scientist or a data engineer or whatever if i want to you know automate something and that might mean if i'm a small utility like that's a no-go because do i really have confidence i'm going to hire how many people am i going to hire and then the people who supervise them don't really know how to do these large data programs so if you're a data company like microsoft and you're providing a tool to someone you feel pretty confident about it but if you're just doing it on your own as a utility uh, you might feel a little, you know, feel that's too risky. But, you know, eventually we're getting to this, I can tell my machine to do something and it can understand my words and do it. And that's game changing. I mean, I don't want to date myself, but, you know, I'm, I, I started with VCRs that I could not program or I'd erase some family event with, you know, some television show by mistake, right? So but the great thing now is that everything is getting to be voice activated. You know, you wanna add a channel onto your TV, just tell your your remote control and it does it for you, right? So that's all AI and automation. But if you think about putting that towards energy, you think about walking into my house and telling my house that I wanted to turn things off or turn things on at a certain time or giving my utility permission, either way, but fundamentally, If you're telling me to do something and I have to program it, like my thermostat, you're telling me I have to program it, you know, I don't know. Telling me that I can walk up to the thermostat and tell it to do something, now I'm with you. And that's what these uh, large language uh, software is really going to be unbelievably enabling.
0: That actually is really interesting. Okay. And I feel like you're starting to convince me about the revolutionary potential of AI. Because as you say, if you are able to do that, if you're able to, automate homes much more easily, if you're able to automate business processes across the entire economy much more easily in the energy industry and elsewhere, right, I can see that does make a massive difference. I was going to say before that, that the other thing that has struck me is the one area which feels to me genuinely revolutionary and where a completely new business model is being created is, Michael, you mentioned this earlier, virtual power plants. And so, for instance, you know, a company like STEM, I don't know if you know of them, but we've been studying them a bit, Wood McKenzie, who essentially use AI to manage virtual power plants. That's taking a wide range of distributed energy resources. So, distributed generation, I think they're um, particularly focused on energy storage batteries, which they can use to provide services to the grid. But also, you can think about integrating demand response. As Amy was saying, you're a utility
1: turn things off. You're away on vacation. They're going to turn things off and turn it back on when the crisis is, the peak crisis is past.
0: Exactly. Turn your freezer off for a little while when everything's really cold and it's going to stay really cold and it's not going to affect anyone if you just don't run the freezer for a little bit at some point during the day. All those kind of things, which make a huge difference to the ways that you can balance the grid and the ways that you can balance the grid with increasing proportions of variable renewables on, which is going to mean that you're going to need to be more flexible on the grid because you're being dictated to more by the weather if you've got more wind and solar power. That does seem to me to be something which is a really significant change from AI, something which you couldn't do 10 years ago with the technology that existed then, but is going to be really important for the grid of the future. Michael, what do you think about that? Is that something do you agree that's a really significant use case?
2: I agree with so. It's like uh, the way I think about it, AI will not replace the power plants, but will let us operate the power plants in a wholly different way. And it won't replace the assets like batteries, but let us operate them in a much better way. So it helps us facilitate the integration of these different discrete distributed technologies where they become part of the asset mix and therefore would save us billions of dollars of places like Texas at power plants we don't have to build because we have these things we can turn off. So virtual power plants, demand response, predictive management of your assets. I think that's actually one of the key areas where AI can make a difference is. Predicting when you need to do maintenance on an asset, but also when you need to store the battery, store electricity in the battery or discharge from the battery because you see weather coming and that weather coming will change what kind of supply you get from the wind and solar, but it will also change what kind of demand you have in the whole, if it's hot or cold and that kind of thing. And I think those complex data sets that are affecting supply and demand and asset life and optimization, and everything else, and the sort of cost effectiveness of operating your different devices. Will be a great use of AI because there's too much data for any one person to analyze accurately. And so we'll need more tools. And that kind of operational improvement becomes non trivial, referring back to what Amy said earlier. Like you have a bunch of little applications, we add them all up that become quite big in effect. That's the kind of way I expect AI will roll out. And our analysis agrees with everyone else's analysis that demand response and virtual power plants are a lot cheaper than new power plants. Now, you can't use virtual power plants instead of of actual power plants for all the energy but at the margins you give it's a real difference so if you can save 10 percent or 15 percent, that's big
1: so i think one of the interesting things you know about what michael's saying is that you know who's doing it now and who's going to do it eventually because right now a lot of the capacity to do this optimization is sitting in the corporate world right it's not sitting in the you know system manager grid operations world um and I think that's a bit of a problem because you've got all these companies doing independent things to optimize their particular business or their particular use of the electricity grid but you're not optimizing as Michael's talking about the power is to optimize the whole grid as a whole and that's going to take you know some real training and and even salary differential if I have the capability to to do all that work you know will would I work for a PUC right? So I think we have some challenges there. And then there's some advantages the companies are already getting. So I'm going to call on Michael to talk about this uh, tool that Google developed that was an AI-powered wind tool that allows you to have hourly prediction about how much wind power is going to be accessible in a particular location. And they sold that program to NG Energy, which was very powerful because ng trades electricity so michael maybe tell us a little bit about that one because uh you know when and people are going to be trading electricity but you and i are not yet able to be prosumers and do that
2: i mean the world of markets that have dynamicism or dynamics involved with it means that the advantage goes to whoever knows more about the future before the others and this is true whether you're trading corn or oil or electricity whatever it is and so forecasting is really important and that prediction or forecasting, I think is one of the most important parts of AI. It might help you predict when your equipment will fail. Well, that's good to know. It might also help you predict on a minute by minute or sub hourly basis when it, and where it will be sunny or windy. And if you have a solar farm, these solar farms can be quite large. It might be cloudy at one part of the solar farm and sunny at the other, and the cloud moves across the solar farm. So understanding using data sets maybe from cameras looking at the sky in the eye to interpret exactly how the cloud will pass over the farm and what your minute by minute variation will be will be really useful. The same is true for wind turbines, knowing how these small variations in wind speed will affect output is really important because if you get 1% more out of a wind farm or solar farm, that's a lot of money over a year.
0: Wilson Cincini is the premier provider of legal services to technology-driven enterprises and innovators. The firm represents growing and established companies and advises management teams and boards of directors. The firm is nationally recognized for its work, advising clients on sophisticated corporate and technology transactions, counseling on complex governance and operational issues, and assisting with IP-related matters, in addition to representing clients in litigation and regulatory matters. In 2022, Wilson Senior was named to Fast Company's annual list of the world's most innovative companies. The award acknowledges the firm's role in the new economy as a creative force in advancing new forms of innovation from fintech to sustainability. Wilson Sonsini's energy and climate change team represents emerging and established clean energy and decarbonisation clients on capitalisation, project development, project finance and market opening regulatory matters. For more information visit wsgr.com Wood Mackenzie's Solar and Energy Storage Summit is back. It's taking place at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco on June the 21st and 22nd. You can join leading utilities, solar and energy storage developers, and federal policymakers to discuss the big issues facing the industry today. How is the Inflation Reduction Act supercharging the development of solar and storage in North America? How can policy continue to support the growth of solar and storage to advance the energy transition? And what does the industry need to build a thriving domestic supply chain? Expect two days of panel discussions, presentations and workshops as we explore the opportunities for solar and storage now and for the future. It's going to be a great event and we look forward to seeing you there. Okay, so this has actually been a fantastic conversation, my favourite kind of conversation, where I feel like I have actually been changing my mind a bit on things as we've been talking. This has been highly educative for me, certainly. I mean, just thinking about this, I want to move on in a moment. Just before we do then, just to kind of take a step back and think about this in the bigger context of the kind of general theme of the energy Gang, I guess, which is about decarbonization of the energy system, getting to net zero, how you do that. Do you think then that really when you look at the challenge of decarbonization and the opportunities created by AI, we are only going to be able to get to net zero? If we use AI to do it.
2: I think we need every tool in the toolbox and I would consider AI one more tool. I would rather have that tool than not, frankly. So I think it'll be helpful, but AI is not enough. We'll have to do a lot of other things as well.
1: But it it does help us, Ed, you know, even in transportation in the United States, uh, we've got transport fuel has been falling for the last three years. People are talking about China, you know, reaching a peak in uh, gasoline and diesel fuel over the next year or two. So I I think it has a lot to do with it because you have a lot of big programs. You know, I've talked on past shows about freight, how the companies that deliver packages to you, that could have been really polluting. But now we have these algorithms that basically like drivers are not picking the routes, like it's all by computer. You're minimizing the amount of fuel you use. You know, I think I've cited this statistic before. You know, UPS, the first year they used this kind of program, they eliminated 100 million miles of vehicle travel for their delivery trucks. GE has provided this to airlines that have their jet engines. Airlines today know they can look at predictive weather and decide what would be the most fuel-efficient engine to put on a certain route. And, you know, you think about, like the complication of these programs. They have to say, when is the pilot available that flies that engine? How many passengers want to travel that route? What's the weather going to be? And then how could I save fuel by putting a particular plane with a particular engine on that route? And all of that is apparently not always seamlessly because, you know, you have the occasional glitch, but mostly seamlessly done by computer, right? So, Again, I'm saying, you know, when you multiply that by every truck delivery in the United States and every truck delivery in Europe and every truck delivery in China, and, you know, I forget where it was, Scandinavia somewhere, might have been Sweden, they they launched their first solar charging road. So in other words, you, you're driving over the road and it's charging your battery.
0: Those things don't work. That's crazy. A solar charging road.
1: Now, listen to me. Yeah, it, go on. They already have up in the Northwest U.S., they already have an electric bus platform where your electric bus stops at a pickup people and there's a fast charger there that charges the thing remotely from the ceiling. And we know Elon Musk made those pads for your garage where you could like drive over it the way you you know put your phone on a pad now. Oh
0: yeah, no, I believe in those, but a roadway that's made of solar cells and that it's meant to charge while people drive over It,
1: it. They're working on it, man. I mean, it's coming.
0: We'll see. We'll see.
2: That seems like a bad idea. Put expensive solar panels on the ground and have it covered by cars and dirt and tires, but we'll see. If they can make it work, that'd be pretty exciting.
0: Anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted you, Amy. What were you getting to do?
1: My point is that it's not just, you know, power sector optimization and integration of renewables, which makes it possible to have more and more renewables. It's also... In the transportation sector, you know, squeezing out the amount of miles I have to travel. Congestion is a major burner of fuel, not only in the United I mean, think about congestion in Indian cities and Chinese cities and Indonesian places like that in Africa. We're gonna be able to use AI to not only squeeze that out, and that's the combination of all kinds of different things. That's the efficiency of the program for freight systems making deliveries. They're gonna move to electrification and then They're going to also use AI to deliver not in a way that creates a lot of traffic congestion the way it does today. But also just I mean, think about this. How many times have you turned on your phone and said, oh, I'm not going to the store right now. There's a lot of traffic and then you don't go. Right. I mean, that in a way is a conservation effort. We'd be using even more fuel if you weren't doing that. So. You know, the more that's why I say it's like tiny, tiny little things. But w- when you multiply it by millions of people, it builds up over time. And, and I just think we're going to move more and more to that. And then, you know, I mean, NYU were, were famous for working in this area. I know Metaverse doesn't have the same reputation that it did before Facebook changed its name to Meta, but the bottom line is people are doing really amazing things. Where you have an avatar or you put on VR glasses and you're either analyzing something together, whether that's the oil industry or you can see what you're doing. Um, And that's going to be helpful in terms of improving processes for machines and so forth. But in addition to that, you and I are going to be able to get together and tour the Louvre and talk about art together in the metaverse. So, you know, I'm not saying no one's ever going to go on holiday and go there in person because that's going to be wonderful. But there's just a certain amount of travel that's going to get eliminated by the fact that we can go there together, even though we live in different countries, and have fun in a particular museum or in a particular location in the metaverse.
0: Okay. Okay. As I say, I think this has been great conversation. I feel like probably my position is shifting a bit on this. Certainly a debate we can come back to. But I do want to move on, though, because there's something else um, I really want to get to on this show, which is to talk about... Texas and take advantage, Michael, of you being here to zoom in on something which I think is really interesting that's been happening in Texas. So, we'd be talking a little bit just now about the challenge of balancing the grid and keeping a reliable and resilient grid running. And this has been a very, very urgent issue in Texas, in particular because of Winterstorm Uri. I'm sure a lot of listeners will remember we've talked about it on this show a couple of times in the past. Texas in February 2021 led to a massive failure of the state's electricity system and contributed to hundreds of deaths. Analysts and regulators, power companies, consumers have been trying to understand what happened in Texas so they can prevent this kind of catastrophic failure from happening in the future and really been studied around the world. People have been asking, well, did Texas rely too much on renewables? Was it about wind power failing? Was that the problem? Was it in fact That Texas relied too much on fossil fuels, and it was the gas-fired plants failing that was the real issue. Is it about transmission capacity? Is it about electricity market design? All these kind of issues which are really important for people to study and to understand as our electricity systems evolve. It turns out there is absolutely no consensus in Texas about the lessons to be learned from the crisis or how to prevent another one. What's been happening recently is that the state's Public Utilities Commission has proposed an electricity market reform called a performance credit mechanism, uh, which has turned out to be bitterly controversial. I've been reading into it a bit over the last few days. It seems basically that just about everybody in Texas hates this idea. You're getting a very uh, strange sort of alliance of people who support renewables and the oil and gas industry all saying this is a very deeply flawed plan and that. Yet, the regulator seems to be going ahead with it. So, Michael, I mean, as I say, just given that kind of snapshot of what seems to me to be going on in Texas, how do you read the situation? What is it that people are talking about in terms of electricity market reform? And why is it that, as I say, this kind of plan, which seems very broadly unpopular, is one they're still trying to pursue?
2: It's a great question, great topic. So, in Texas, we like to build things. It's pretty easy to build whatever you want in Texas. So we built more gas and coal and batteries and wind and solar than just about anywhere else in the United States in the last 15 or 20 years. We have, as a consequence, pretty cheap electricity. So we're attracting a lot of industrial energy consumers, data centers and factories and other sort of of the sort, which is really great. But because we are self-contained in Texas, we don't connect our grid to the other grids. We have to rely on ourselves for reliability, which is a policy choice, by the way. I recommend we connect our grid to the others, but we made a choice to stay isolated. So we have an extra big challenge of balancing our grid in real time without being able to lean on our neighbors for support. And to put it in perspective, our grid is about the same size as England's or Germany's or Australia's or something like that. So it's a big grid, but we have a lot of variability in the demand because of changing weather from cold to hot and in the supply from all the wind and solar we have. So it's a pretty complex situation. And when you have these winter storm Uri events that happened two years ago, Everything failed. The gas infrastructure froze and failed. The power sector failed, which includes gas and coal and nuclear and wind and solar. The only technology or fuel that overperformed was hydroelectric, actually. They did better than expected. But that is such a small resource in Texas, it doesn't make a big difference. There's a lot of hydro in the West, a lot of hydro in the Northeast. In Texas have very little hydro, so we didn't have that as a backup. And then we have this very expensive consequential failure. Then people start to point figures and blame and want to fix it, but they've chosen sides about how to fix it. Rather than deal with the root causes, there is sort of a political alignment and a culture war going around, which fuels you like. And the Public Utility Commission has its market mechanism, former credit mechanism, you said. But the Texas legislature said, not so fast. We get to decide how we're going to do it. And they have a whole raft of bills that are mostly sticking into rural energy by either making rural energy illegal or overly expensive while mandating and subsidizing, incentivizing fossil fuels. So we have a culture war playing out right now in the Texas legislature, which will end at the end of May. We'll see what shapes out, but we might have a bunch of bills that make it illegal to build renewables as a consequence of this. It's really crazy times here.
0: I hadn't realized that was something that was happening. So just to talk about what the Utilities Commission is looking at first, and then I want to come on to these questions about what's going on in the legislature um a performance credit mechanism you want to in simple terms explain that how does that work
2: yeah so performance credit mechanism some of us joke we call it pcm or pretend capacity market it's a way to reward uh, generators who have capacity available at times we need it. so it's actually rewarding you if you were available to perform at the critical times of the peak hours and it was mostly a nod towards the thermal generators the older thermal generators in particular the old gas and coal plants it's a way to sort of throw them an economic lifeline to keep them around so that we have that capacity available when we need it. At the last minute, the Public Utility Commission inserted this technology agnostic language because renewables advocates argued if you have wind and solar plus batteries, well, that would be available for them as well. So as it's implemented from the PUC or as it's proposed, it would reward any generator that was available when we need it. Now, that could change because there's a lot of support and push for fossil fuels, and among elected officials, a lot of antagonism for Renewables. So that could change before it's implemented. But the idea is simply a lifeline to existing capacity, like don't retire yet. We'll pay you to hang around because we might need you. And do you think that plan makes sense then? I think it makes some sense. I'm actually not a critic of our current market design, which a lot of people don't like. I think our market design incentivizes sort of building new capacity. We've been building a lot of stuff in the last 20 years in Texas. I think it ends up being cheaper overall. I'd like to see our current market design, which is an energy-only market, I'd like to see that with some regulatory standards where you have to winterize and you have to be reliable. I think going to a capacity market and tends to be more expensive. It's not necessarily more reliable. During winter storm, the capacity markets in neighboring states also failed, didn't capture the same headlines, didn't fail as badly because the storm wasn't as big over those areas and they had more transmission capacity. So I would say if we were on a fixed reliability, keep the energy-only market, add some winterization reliability requirements expand the transmission network, add more demand response, that's a whole lot cheaper than going to capacity markets or mandating new natural gas power plants.
0: And tell me about what's going on in the legislature then, because one of the sort of, in a way, surprising things about Texas is just how strong renewable energy has been there, right? I think by some distance, number one state in the US for wind power. I think it's number two for solar. As you say, people in Texas like to build things. It's been a great success in terms of building renewable energy. But now what, the legislature wants to stop that?
2: Yes. So we have some key elected officials in the Texas legislature that want to stop the energy miracle on its track, so to speak, especially the growth of wind and solar that they'd rather support, especially natural gas. And so they're using a thumb on the scale with policies to basically make it illegal or impossible or economically intractable to build wind and solar. So these are onerous, setback requirements or community engagement requirements, things that are not required of oil and gas, for example. If you want to build a wind farm now, you have to ask your neighbors if these laws pass. In uh, one case, they were actually considered for well, an outright moratorium. Now, that hasn't made out of committee, but there have been a lot of these sort of anti-renewables bills. At the same time, pro-gas bills, a mandate to build gas that would be paid for in a social sway by the state. And this is something that Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett really want. They want this sort of plan to mandate $18 billion of new natural gas power plants that we'd use 50 hours a year or something like this. And this is very anti-market, like it's going in a very heavily regulated way in favor of gas. So it's kind of amazing to me to watch the Republicans in the Texas legislature who have said they believe in market forces for 50 years, toss aside market forces to go to sort of a centralized command and control design where they pick winners and losers, and the winner is natural gas without a doubt. And the losers are wind and solar. We don't know if that will pass. It's passed out of the committee. It's passed out of the Senate, it's gone to the House. And usually the Texas legislature is kind of nuts and the governor, lieutenant governor are a moderating force on this. This year, the governor, lieutenant governor are not moderating forces on this. They're kind of amplifying some of that, especially lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, who really wants to mandate natural gas and in almost prohibit renewables. So it's kind of wild times in the renewables industry. Like wind and solar employ 37,000 people, they employ many more people than nuclear coal combined and they're generating most of the growth and new developments for power plants, their lobby is not as old and well-organized as, say, the oil and gas lobby. And so we'll see how it shakes out. But I think there is something like 50 to $100 billion of near-term economic development at risk if we pass the stupid bills.
0: So, Amy, what do you think about this? As you're watching Texas and you're seeing these kind of developments, how do you interpret this kind of pressure to crack down on renewables, generation and renewable development, essentially, and support uh, natural gas?
1: Well, there's some very important people who, uh, you know, given a lot of money to move things in that direction, a lot of disinformation. I find it discouraging, all the disinformation that flows around on Twitter about electricity in Texas. But, you know, you have a big player. You know, Elon Musk moved to Texas. They just inaugurated a new battery factory. The governor wants him there. And he's pushing. He did a whole... Workshop and pilot program on virtual power plant. He's invested in getting his batteries into the grid in Texas. And indeed, you know, the numbers uh, for the amount of batteries that have gone in in Texas are quite stunning. They've gone from nothing to 1.7 gigawatts in just a number of two, three years. And predictions are it could get to seven and a half gigawatts. That's a lot. You know, by comparison, New York has a really ambitious virtual power plant program, which they've already started to implement under Governor Cuomo and now are continuing. And they're only thinking they can get the six gigawatts of battery storage by 2030. And that's with all these incentives and no one fighting. It. So, you know, it's kind of like I think Texas politicians are probably a little conflicted in the sense that like Michael said, a lot of jobs coming in with this clean energy. You've got Musk bringing a lot of jobs to Texas. He's got to be an important person today in the Texas economy. You've got in Houston, you know, they offered, opened up this whole center in downtown Houston that they were hoping I think is going to compete with Greentown Labs in terms of generating, you know, new technologies. And it's, it's the states to lose on, you know, not, being forward looking i'm not saying that you know the new biden rules epa rules that are proposed for power plants are talking about exempting natural gas peaking plants so no one's arguing that for some period of time we don't need these natural gas peaking plants but the potential of virtual power plant the potential of new technologies it would be really unfortunate if texas would be so retrograde when they're known as sort of an innovative state
0: Michael, anything else? Do you, want, do you want to comment on that? Or I mean, it's not
2: unusual for Texas to have crazy legislation under consideration, but weirdly, usually Texas ends up doing the right thing for all the wrong reasons. And this time, I'm curious whether we'll do all the wrong things for all the wrong reasons or we'll do the right things for the wrong reasons or whatever. We'll see where we end up. Usually, in the end, we choose the economic pathway. If it's good for the economy, we'll do it. So I, I suspect a lot of these really bad bills won't become law. But we're in such a deep culture war right now, sometimes culture trumps your own economic sort of prosperity. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. We'll know at the end of May.
0: Yeah, clearly is going to be a really interesting and important story to follow. And I think it's definitely one of those times when the eyes of the rest of America and the eyes of the world are on Texas to see what you do and how things play out there. So thanks for telling us about that. So we do just about have to leave it there, I'm afraid, very quickly before we do want to get to our free electrons, personal items, things we've noticed or been doing or have experienced that we've brought in. Michael, maybe start with you. What's yours?
2: There's so much to think about energy. It's such an exciting time. And wearing my professor hat, I say the students are ready to take on the world. Or wearing my venture capital hat, I say there's a lot of cool inventions, innovators, and entrepreneurs out there. So I'm pretty optimistic we'll solve this for a variety of reasons. And one problem I can't let go of my head is the problem of waste heat and wasted energy. More than 50% of our primary energy we consume is released as waste heat into the waterways or the atmosphere. And this just strikes me as the number one resource we have to figure out, which means either reducing the waste heat or finding a way to harvest it. And I've seen a couple of technologies recently that are kind of novel about taking waste heat and turning it into something useful, like electricity or some other maybe higher grade heat. So that's something just a problem in my head. Like, I wish we could solve that. I wish we could solve the craziness of Texas. I wish we could understand AI but I wish we could solve waste heat. So that's the thing on my mind I can't let go of that I'm hoping one of you great adventurers will bring to me so we can invest in that.
0: Cool. Yeah, no, that is fascinating and very interesting. As you say, it's one of those things that everyone always comments on in the energy system is just how much waste heat there is. But if you've actually got solutions and ways of dealing with that and using it and doing something productive with it, that could be a fantastic breakthrough. Very exciting. Amy, what's yours?
1: So mine is uh, switching gears. Mine's geopolitical, Ed. Uh, uh, I remember I I sent you a little item I I noticed about Orsted uh, about to install 111 turbines 60 kilometers into the Taiwan Straits to help part of Taiwan's green energy plan. And people raised eyebrows and said, geez, maybe this is the first geopolitical uh, renewable energy construction in context of a disputed landscape. So uh, I think more to come as we deploy more and more uh, renewable energy, people like me are gonna be doing game theory models about electricity coercion and uh, the geopolitics of new energy. And people have talked about the mining and the minerals. I don't think that's really as important going forward as this sort of uh, electrification and who can attack and who can defend electrified resources.
0: Yeah, as you say, this is really an area we're just beginning to start to think about. Obviously, an enormous amount has been written and said about the geopolitics of oil, increasingly recent the geopolitics of gas as well. But what the geopolitics of a global low carbon energy system look like, I think we're just starting to discover. And that's something we are going to need to think a lot more about in the future. It's going to become increasingly important as the years and decades pass my free electron is just observation really something i've been noticing about we've been talking about texas want to think about another state which is florida and what's been happening to the insurance industry in florida absolutely amazing the way that people's premiums have been going up there's been a whole big thing on social media recently people talking about their homeowner's premiums going up by 50 percent in a year in florida Um, It's something the authorities in the state have sort of noticed and be concerned about. They've been saying that the insurance industry in Florida has had two straight years of losses of more than a billion dollars. And clearly the insurance industry is in a terrible state there. A lot of insurance companies are actually moving out of Florida because they can't make money there anymore. So it makes it really hard for people to find insurance clearly various things going on. It seems like maybe there's a very disproportionate amount of insurance fraud happening in Florida. That seems to be one of the assertions that's going on. But clearly another big issue is vulnerability to weather events. We had Hurricane Ian hit Florida last year, the third most costly hurricane to hit the United States. That's in real terms, even adjusting for inflation, cost estimated at about $113 billion, hugely damaging and destructive storm. With sea level rising, Florida, South Florida in particular, is one of the areas that's really vulnerable. I've just been reading a really um, great book about this; very highly recommended book called "Disposable City," which is about Miami by someone called Mario Alejandro Ariza. Well worth checking out if you're interested in that city and the impact of climate change on Florida. And so, just strikes me as a really interesting example when people talk about where are the impacts of climate change really going to kind of affect people, where people are really going to notice things in their lifestyles. In their pocketbooks in things that are really kind of practical and directly relevant to them what's going on in florida seems like a great example of that so really interesting and well worth following in the future i think so that was as i say something that really struck me well we do have to leave it there but thanks very much indeed to you amy thanks very much for uh, changing my mind about a few things it's been great talking to you
1: great to be here ed always available to change your mind about something
0: and many thanks to you, Michael, as well. Thanks very much for joining us today. Hope we'll see you back again on The Energy Gang soon. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks very much to our producers, Toby Biggins-Gilchrist and Sam Nash. And above all, many thanks to all of you for listening. As you know, we're always keen to hear your thoughts, your praise, criticism, comments, complaints, whatever it might be. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at The Energy Gang. I'm at at Ed underscore Crooks. I'm also on Mastodon. I'm at Ed Crooks at Mastodon.energy. I haven't been using my Mastodon account an enormous amount, I have to admit, but I have tried recently to be a bit more active there, so hopefully you'll actually see something there if you go and check that out. And on the Energy Gang, we'll be back again in two weeks for all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye.